The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. From our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon. I'm the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, a national progressive and democratic pollster and strategist, and a political analyst for News Radio KNX in Los Angeles. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation falling. Just today, today we have a big show for you. Uh, two guests as usual. In the first half hour, our guest is Paul Lisnick, uh, who is the political and legal analyst at WGN-TV in Chicago. Uh, He's also the host of The Political Report, which you can watch live on WGN Sundays at 9 a.m. Central Time. Uh, And he's also the author of uh, so many books, I forget how many he's written. I think the most recent, if I'm correct, Paul, is Assumed Treason. Uh, Then in the second half hour, our guest is Edward Thigene, who is the Senior Director of Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress. Uh, We're going to uh, talk about Donald Trump's legal problems in this half hour. We're going to start off with this clip from CNN uh, and uh, about uh, Trump's most recent legal action. Judgment was entered last week, and that started a 30-day timetable for the former president to appeal this um, very large verdict. Uh, I have analyzed uh, Judge Ngoran's uh, rulings of fact, uh, his the evidence that he is the legal basis, and it, it's going to be very tough to overturn on appeal. Um, by the time you enter in interest on the other costs, uh, you're well because you you can't just post a bond for the amount of the uh, disgorgement um, uh, plus the uh, prejudgment interest. He's going to have to post a bond for the interest while he takes his appeal. So that's going to push you to 110 to 120 percent over 500 million. Another 100 million plus is going to be required for the Eugene Carroll appeal, most likely. Uh, but uh, the, the AG will not make those aggressive moves until that 30-day period that has now started running runs out. Trump mm-hmm. will undoubtedly, he's asked the judge first day, the judge refused. He'll undoubtedly go to the court of, uh, uh, that is going to hear the appeal, the appellate division, the first department, to ask them for a stay uh, because he needs more time to get that large sum together. And there are questions about whether he can 
get the cash or get a bond in that amount. That was uh, CNN's legal analyst, Norm Eisen, discussing uh, Trump's uh, notice to appeal the court ruling in the New York State case. Here uh, we have uh, WGN-TV's legal and political analyst. He's also uh, the host of Sun- on Sunday morning, uh, the political report on WGN in Chicago. I'm sure you can see that on your cable systems if you live in the Midwest and also online. So uh, don't miss it. Uh, he is also the author of many books, including... Uh, Boom Treason, which I'm sure you can find online if you'd like to read it, and I suggest you do. Uh, Paul, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Thanks for joining us today. Always good to be with you, Brad. I love your work. Well, uh, I love yours, too. Let's uh, start uh, with the uh, Trump notice to file an appeal. Could you give us some background on that case, please? So I'm assuming you're talking about the New York uh, money case. That's that's yes. the latest in the appeals, right? I mean, there's so much going up in various appeals. Yeah, on, I know. It's hard to keep cases. track. That's why I wanted you on the show. Yeah. Can't keep track. And I'm sure um, viewers and listeners are having a hard time. So, yeah, given given what Norm Eisen just said. So the bottom line is this. A judge, uh, Judge Angoran, found him liable to the tune of, I'm going to use round numbers here, uh, $350 plus million dollars. You may have heard some folks on TV start talking about it as $450 million, and that's because there's something called prejudgment interest, which started accruing for part of his violation, so to speak, back in 2019. Other parts of it, it started accruing in 2022. Bottom line is, it's about $100 million in interest that has been accruing overall. So that puts him at $450 million plus right now. Add in E. Jean Carroll's motion, uh, money of $85 million, and you see where the numbers build. But right now, the appeal you asked me about is in the real estate uh, case. And so what happened is they went back to Judge Angoran and said, hey, look, we have issues. We have questions. Um, please give us a 30-day stay because getting this money is not going to be easy. And Goran said, no way. He said something along the lines of, I'm sure the appellate court will treat you appropriately. So they're trying to get the appellate court to do the same. Why are they seeking a stay in terms of having the money? Because as of last Friday, when Judge and Gorin's order issued, the Trump group has 30 days to put that $450 million plus money uh, up uh, in, in security, either the exact amount from his funds or he's got to go get a loan um, for that amount. And usually that means he's got to put up security of 120%. The problem is that the judge also said you cannot borrow money from any bank that's licensed in or does business in New York. Well, what bank doesn't do business in New York, including Deutsche Bank, which is the one bank that gave Trump money when other banks might not? So Trump is on the search for money. Um, Look, I personally think one way or another in the 30 days he will find it. It, I don't know how you do it because it's not legal, but somehow I feel like money from Saudi Arabia or some country will find its way uh, into into meeting this needs because that's not a bank that's you know licensed in New York. But the bottom line is, if for some reason that 30 day passes, no stay is issued by, issued by the appellate court, um, and he hasn't put up the money, that's when Letitia James, the Attorney General, can begin proceedings to start taking Trump properties to then cash them in for that amount. Well, that raises an interesting point. Paul, because on the face of it, you know, fi- you know, a fine so, you, that's so massive. Uh, Donald Trump and his two sons will not be allowed to conduct business in New York State. That's my understanding. 
But he always finds a way to wiggle out of these things, doesn't he? Yeah, well, he's prevented from running corporations or doing what he's doing for three years. The kids are prevented for two years. So that is a period of time. One way or another, and by the way, whether he wriggles out of it or spins it, one of those two things will happen. If he can't wriggle his way out of it, then I think what he's going to say is what we'll hear in the general campaign, because certainly he's going to get the nomination. He'll start talking about the fact that it doesn't matter that he can't operate his businesses for three years because he will be president for four years. And he has no time to work on the businesses and would never think of working on the businesses anyway. That will be the spin. His supporters will accept that. Um, with regard to the kids and what they do, well, the restriction is for New York. So to the extent there are properties or projects or will be projects that are not based in New York, um, none of them are prevented from pursuing those. The issue would be that in the business community, as much as Trump supporters stand behind him, no matter what happens, the question is, will other people in the real estate world and banks, will they stand behind him when this person who now has been hit with this kind of verdict or liability call from a judge, will they say, sure, let's build a new building with you? It's one thing for a Trump supporter to say, I'll give you $25 towards your efforts, which, by the way, he's been paying his legal fees with. But it's a whole nother thing for sophisticated business people to say, I will take a chance on a Trump property going forward. I don't know what they'll do. Yeah, it's really uh, it's really amazing. Truly amazing. Uh, let's start. Uh, there are all sorts of legal proceedings uh, that are pending against Donald Trump. Uh, now, I like to think I follow these events closely, but uh, I can't keep track of them. Uh, I doubt our viewers and listeners can. Uh, so uh, we're going to uh, uh, we're going to take a break in about a minute. But I want to come back and uh, try to get through some of these uh, cases. I know we have less than. I know we have less than a minute, so let me suggest a really good way to go through these because, yes, there are millions to talk about. But I think a really good approach that I'm sure you're, you plan on taking anyway is to come back and say what is first and what actually happens before okay. the election because that's what matters. That sounds reasonable. And we'll be back with our first guest today, Paul Lisnick, who is the political and legal analyst for WGN-TV in Chicago. Uh, he's the host of the Political Report Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Central uh, on WGN. And he's also the uh, author of numerous books, which I'm sure you can find online. Uh, we're going to go to break now, uh, but uh, we'll keep this interview going with our viewers on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and wherever else. Uh, for our radio listeners, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Uh, we'll be right back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we are discussing uh, Donald Trump's uh, legal problems, trials and tribulations with Paul Lisnick, uh, political and legal analyst for WGN-TV in Chicago. Yes, it does sound like a Law & Order episode sometimes. Uh, Paul, uh, you raised the issue of the Supreme Court. Uh, there have already been arguments before the Supreme Court where essentially uh, Donald Trump is claiming presidential immunity for pretty much everything he's ever done or will do, I guess. Uh, now he has a six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court. But it seems to me, and 
or the expert, that's why we have you on, that even a conservative judge is going to have a hard time believing or ruling that John president has absolute immunity. So you're right that that's the issue we're waiting to hear from. The concerning part of that is that uh, request from the Trump campaign to issue, uh, 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 not just to hear the immunity issue, but to issue a stay in the case. That's actually, and here, by the way, whether they take the immunity issue or not, you know what, you're right, Brad, there's no way that uh, a majority of that court is going to find that any president is immune no matter what they do. So I will go on a limb and say, I know how that case will come out. Really not my concern. The concern is that we haven't heard from the, the Leslie Marshall Show. We haven't heard from the court in over two weeks in terms of whether or not they're going to grant a stay. Now, it will take four justices to hear the immunity case. It takes five to grant the stay. If they grant the stay, nothing's happening before the election and it's Trump wins. If they don't grant the stay, then things will continue. Judge Chutkin will try and get back in the swing of things. But there's even dynamics there that you, I can talk about it if you want me to. But the thing is, we have Judge Cannon in Florida. She's got a date set in May. There are ways for other judges to mess the works up here in such a way that Judge Chutkin finds it almost impossible to get this case tried until election time, at which time the Department of Justice may have reservations about proceeding because we are so close to election time. See the game that's being played? Yeah. Now, essentially, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is, is Is Trump and his lawyers just essentially doing everything they can to run out the clock so nothing, no legal liability occurs until after he's elected president? The answer is a simple yes. And if he is elected president, then his appointed attorney general will dismiss all of the federal cases without question. And the civil cases, or I shouldn't say that's not right. The, the, um, the, The remaining state case, which would be Georgia at that point, You can be sure the Supreme Court will stay because they will say he's too busy being president right now. That will have to wait for four years until it happens. And who knows? He may find a way to to get a stay even on some of these civil judgments for some reason. At that point, the court may be open to that, saying a president has to concentrate completely on being president. That one I'm less certain about than the one about staying Georgia. Okay, uh, one of the many cases pending uh, is the uh, special prosecutor uh, in the Department of Justice. Uh, has uh, former President Trump has been indicted for with, you know, holding on to secret documents after he uh, left the White House. Where are we on that case? Well, we, we are far, much further behind than we're supposed to be. The trial date is set to be May 20th. Uh, this judge is hardly even in a motion stage right now. And she's, what, two months away from a trial date? It's just not going to happen. There are a lot of people who think she's slow rolling this thing because she's in Trump's pocket. He did appoint her to the court. I'm not so sure it's that as much as I think she's incompetent. And I I don't say that lightly. Um, She's shown herself to be incompetent in some of her rulings, twice getting reversed by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And I think what Jack Smith is waiting for is a few of those other pretty fateful goofs that will lead him, Jack Smith, to go to the 11th Circuit and request that she be removed and replaced on the case. I think that's Smith's ultimate goal here, but he's not quite ready to do it. She hasn't, because a lot of times her rules are not in writing. She does what's called minute orders, 
and and she's not stupid. Uh, she may be incompetent, but she's not stupid. She understands that with a with a simple minute order, there's less for Jack Smith up to take up to an appellate court to try and get it reversed because you're not seeing any reasoning or extensive decisions there. I think she knows what she's doing in terms of running out the clock. I do think she's incompetent to handle this kind of complex case. She's never handled one before. I shouldn't have said complex case. It's not a complex case. It's really pretty simple. And there's really no reason this thing shouldn't be moving along with its trial date of May 20th. Jack Smith's only hope there is to get her removed from the case, in my view. Okay, uh, I've been following the tracking, uh, the exit polls that have been conducted by the media uh, during uh, the Republican presidential primaries. Uh, and one question they've asked in, uh, after each of the primaries of voters who actually voted is, uh, do you think a Trump conviction uh, would disqualify him from being president? And as a general rule, something between about 70 to 75 percent of the Republican voters don't think uh, Donald Trump's legal problems or conviction would disqualify him from being president. So my question is, how much of an impact uh, does this have, do these trials have on uh, Donald Trump's, uh, you know, uh, election fortunes on November 5th? Well, I think part of what you're asking me there, and I'll address it first, is this notion of, is he qualified to hold office if he's convicted? This sort of brings up the Section uh, 14th Amendment, Section 3 argument that came out of Colorado. We're also waiting to hear from the Supreme Court with their decision there. Because here's the thing. All these other things, the charges, he could be convicted of murder for all that matters. The Constitution says you only need three things to be president. You've got to be 35. You've got to live here for 14 years. And you've got to be a naturalized citizen. He is all of those things. It doesn't say and don't be convicted. Probably because the founders never expected a president to have crimes that he might be convicted of. So the only way out legally from that perspective is the Colorado decision right now. I have no doubt that the court is going to basically say that the Colorado decision uh, is, is invalid, will be found unconstitutional. But here's the trick to that whole routine, which is the, the, the rule in section three doesn't say you can't run for president. It says you can't hold the office. So arguably, the court could come out and say, well, unless he's elected, this is all moot and doesn't matter. And this is something we'll have to revisit if he's reelected. I don't think they'll take that route because they don't want to kick the can down the road. But the other issue is he has never been charged or convicted of insurrection, even though a judge has found that he's committed insurrection. I think a court down the line would end up saying, unless you have a charge of insurrection and a conviction by a jury of insurrection, you ain't got insurrection. Doesn't mean that your listeners or viewers agree or disagree with that. It just it's just legally what's probably going to happen. Okay. One last question, Paul, because we only have got about 45 seconds left. Uh, it's obvious that most Republicans just voting for Trump, uh, his legal problems are not disqualifying for the people voting Republican primaries. Do you think these legal problems affect um, would hurt Trump among swing voters, you know, maybe suburban voters who live in uh, suburbs and uh, outside cities in the big battleground states? I think the only verdicts that will ultimately hurt him would be if the January 6th case with Judge Chutkin is heard and he's convicted there, that will hurt him. The documents case would be second if it's heard, that could hurt him. The Georgia case would hurt him, but it's not gonna be heard. All these civil cases don't really matter. And I don't think that the Stormy Daniels case is going to matter to people okay. as well. So the we're gonna have to leave it up yeah. at that, that, Paul. 
Uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, we'll have more of the Deadline DC right after this break. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Edward Theogene, uh, who is the Senior Director of Racial Equality and uh, Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress. Before we get to Edward, we're going to play this clip um, from Neera Tendon, who is a white uh, Biden administration official uh, who used to run the Center for American Progress, which uh, where uh, Edwith works now. Anyway, we'll play the clip and uh, bring in Edwith to speak about it. This is really about a vision that means everyone in the federal government is fairly served. Research has demonstrated time and time again that redressing these opportunity gaps will drive stronger economic growth for all of us. Those forces that want to make everything a zero-sum game are simply wrong. In fact, research from the Federal Reserve's 12th District finds that the gaps of opportunity for women and people of color cost the U.S. national economy $2.6 trillion in foregone GDP in 2019. If these gaps were closed, it's estimated that economic output would increase by an additional $3.1 trillion in 2029. That just means when we make sure everyone is part of opportunity, we all do better. That is why the Biden-Harris administration has issued these two historic executive orders and is driving equitable implementation of the president's landmark Investing in America agenda and other key legislation. We are focused on increasing economic and social mobility and making real the promise of America for everyone. As I said, we all do better when we all do better. It is my incredible honor to share that all cabinet-level agencies and a total of 23 large agencies are releasing their annual equity action plans, which include over 100 strategies and actions that will be implemented this year to address systemic barriers in the nation's policies and programs. Agencies are taking action to promote fairness in the housing market, address gender-based workforce discrimination, ensure health equity, and access for LGBTQ plus Americans, expand contracting opportunities for veterans, and expand safe and accessible transportation for people with disabilities. Today, the Biden-Harris administration will also release a new White House Equity Action Plan Progress Report, which highlights examples of more than 650 actions agencies have undertaken since the release of our 2022 action plans. Welcome back to Deadline DC. Our guest in this half hour is Edward Theogene, who is the Senior Director of Racial Equity and Justice at the Center uh, for American Progress. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Edward. It's good to have you back. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, let's start. Uh, the president uh, last year in 2023 required federal agencies and departments to submit uh plans for diversity and inclusion uh how's that uh, how much progress have we made in the last year um we've done a lot of progress so this recent uh release of equity action plans is the second time that they have been released 
and it is in response to the second EO. So the very first day, I'm going to say it again because I think it was really monumental. The very first day in office, President Joe Biden signed an executive order for a whole government approach to equity. And then he continued to sign another he released another directive to really double down on what he was asking for the agencies to do. Um, and I think that it has been pretty effective. They've been engaging with lots of community members. They've been really diligent about getting the best and brightest minds to look at the data, statistics, and really trying to find what are the best practices when it comes to implementing equity considerations all throughout government and through government processes. So I'm really excited for this next iteration, which basically highlights the progress that has been made and then also talks through some of the activities and actions that they would like to do for 2024. So they have a dashboard um, and a website where folks can go to learn more about each of these agencies' um, activities. Like Nir Tandon said, there's over 100 of these equity action plans and all of them really drill down into the mission of what these agencies are here to do and also to ensure that everyone can have access to um, the, the services of all of these agencies. So it's really exciting. Can you uh, tell us, Ed, with uh, give us some specific examples of uh, what is expected to come out of this? So a lot of this, um, a couple of things, there's an, op, uh, an objective to address the inequity when it comes to economic opportunity. So a lot of the agencies are coming together to improve um, the financial health of underserved businesses and communities. Uh, during the release of a lot of these, of the second equity action plans, we also had um, the secretary for the SBA who was available. We also had folks in the Department of Commerce who were available, um, who were there talking about some of their plans. Um, they're doing a lot of work to work with community development financial institutions and minority depository institutions and banks. Um, there's also some work to end gender-based workforce discrimination, which is very important across the board. Um, as everyone knows, or if you don't know, I'm telling you women have persistently lower wages and fewer workplace benefits than men. Um, and these disparities are even more underscored for many women of color. So Department of Labor is going to be imp implementing a good jobs principles um, and also doing some work to ensure that female dominated sectors administer um, fostering access rights and equity grant program for women impacted by these uh, gender-based violence and harassments. There's also a lot of work that's happening in HUD. Um, they're doing a lot of work to address inequity in housing and community investment, which I think is really exciting. Secretary Marsha Fudge um, is super passionate and adamant about this. And even you know, before she even knew the directives were a thing, that was also something that she very much so prioritized. So HUD has released a series of different plans to really um, address a lot of the discrimination that's going with housing and also taking a look at creating more um, affordable housing for folks who need it. So they're looking to expand safe and accessible affordable transportation and working um, with other agencies like the Department of Transportation. So there's a lot of uh, interagency collaboration happening. Um, also, these equity action plans will look to address inequity in health. Um, we all know that there is a high rate of maternal mortality for black women. So HHS, the Department of Health and Human Sciences, is going to be making childbirth and postpartum periods safer and focusing on that. So there's a lot more I could keep going on, but uh, just wanted to, to give you those few highlights. 
Okay. So l- let me ask you th- this question. It's Black History Month. Uh, are we making are we making progress? I mean, substantial progress. It's nice to have all these you know plans and goals from the Biden administration, and I congratulate them for pursuing them. Uh, but are we making real progress in racial matters? I mean, I think it would have to depend on how we are defining real progress. And I think that's also a very broad, subjective sort of, of, of question. But I will say this, never in the history of the United States has there been a president who has said that they are prioritizing equity and they want the whole government to um, participate and then prioritizing equity. So I think that is is a really great win. We've also seen the power of the purse of government be used to support under-resourced communities across the board. Like a lot of this work around um, making sure that people have access to services requires like putting your money where your mouth is. And when you can put material means to create action, I believe that that's like um, heading in the, like pushing us as a country into the right direction. So I think like there's still so much more that needs to be done Um, And there's a lot at stake in terms of trying to ensure that we continue the good work that is happening right now. Um, Racism is still a thing. Structural racism is still a thing. But like Nira said, having um, government action to redress a lot of the historic harms and the legacy of slavery, redlining and all of the, the bad discriminatory and racist public policy is really important and really critical. Um, you know, for us to really achieve what this country is really about, which is about having opportunity, which is about um, the ability to self-determine. Okay, our guest in this half hour is Edward Theogene, who is the Senior Director of Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress. Uh, If you'd like to comment uh, to Ed with her Twitter handle is who is Edwith? That's W H O I N E D U I T H. We're going to go to break now uh, for our radio listeners. And I want to remind our radio listeners uh, that if you'd like to watch us as instead of just listening to us uh, and you want to watch uh, during the radio breaks, uh, which we take, you can watch us at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. Uh, so we'll be back with more Deadline DC right after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Edith Theogene, Senior Director of Racial Equity and Justice at the Center for American Progress. Uh, Edith, there are a couple of states, and there are probably more than a couple, but at least I'm aware of efforts uh, in the state of Florida uh, and Oklahoma, where there are Republican governors, uh, who are basically... uh, prohibiting uh, racial diversity programs uh, in state colleges and universities in those uh, states. Could you comment on that, please? Yeah, I mean, 
last year it was critical race theory that everyone was attacking. Um, and years past it was cancel culture and now it's DEI efforts. And the arguments that, that are being used against these programs are pretty wild. Um, what's happening in Florida has also been really sad as a, as a born and raised Floridian. Um, I think on the heels of the Supreme Court's affirmative action uh, decision, a lot of uh, DEI attacks are happening not only for corporations, but also for higher ed. Um, and we need to realize that higher ed as a public good should remain in the hands and control of the public. And right now it's a vocal minority using bad faith attacks on DEI and academic freedom to hijack higher ed. You know, this is a small minority of people who say that this is what they want to get rid of. And I think what's also sort of interesting about these attacks to DEI efforts is that they're they're taking civil rights law, civil rights precedents, and using that to their benefit to say that these programs are exclusionary towards a subset of people when in actuality it's trying to create more inclusion within our communities. So again, this is, you know, on the heels of the Supreme Court decision, as well as the backlash to uh, the George Floyd racial justice uprising that happened in 2020. You know, this is, uh, I think, significant because, uh, well, let's face it, uh, uh, anybody who sees me knows that I'm of an advanced age, and it was a long time ago when I was in college. But even back when I was in college, we had racial diversity programs, and now they're trying to cut these back, it seems like a remarkable step backwards. Yeah, it's really kind of upsetting because it makes you think what's going to happen to the future. If we don't have these DEI programs within higher education or within these corporations, you have to wonder what is going to be the work pipeline, right, of our labor force and what is that going to look like moving forward? Um, because a lot of these programs were in response and to redress a lot of uh, structural racism that exists within this country. So if we take those these programs away, I think we as a society lose the economic and social benefits that these programs can offer us. Now, that raises another issue, which we uh, which uh, we talked about after the clip at the top of the half hour, at the bottom of the half hour, I guess, or the bottom of the hour and to get up on this uh, Jingo here. Uh, but anyway, why do some white people feel so threatened uh, by these, you know, by racial diversity efforts? So uh, uh, Nira said something in the clip that I wish I could remember about we're, we're all better off when we're dealing with these issues. Uh, why are people so threatened by them? I mean, that's a really good question. I guess I could also flip it back and you know, if white people are the ones that are threatened, like, I, I feel like that's a question for white people to answer. Like, why is that the case? Um, and even with that question, the, the consequences of that fear, um, I do recommend folks reading a book by Heather McGee called The Sum of Us, which basically talks about how a lot of these past discriminatory and racist public policies that our country has um, is also bad for white people too. Like it's bad for all of us, right? And even in Nir Tannen's remarks, she talks about how if we are able to stay on this path 
and continue investing in racial equity, diversity, and not just racial equity, but equity writ large, um, you know, the gaps in labor market opportunities for women and people of color basically cost the United States $2.6 trillion in um, the G- GDP. So if we continue increasing these gap, closing these gaps and increasing economic output, um, we can receive $3.1 trillion in 2029 alone. So like our GDP will grow to $3.1 trillion in 2029 alone. So there's a lot of great possibility in closing these gaps and addressing inequities. But yeah, I think if you want to figure out like what the fear is, I mean, I could ask you that, Brad, like, why do you think white people are afraid of, of equity or afraid of some of these advancements? Well, I'm not sure I do understand because I don't feel that way. Um, and, you know, maybe it's because, I don't know, my upbringing or something. You know, I always, you know, when I hear about discrimination, what I think uh, about is my grandfather. My grandfather was the first canon um, to be born in this country after his father, my great my great grandfather immigrated from Ireland. And he used to tell me stories all the time about, you know, he was a young man looking for a job. Uh, and he'd go into these factories and stores and they'd have these signs, no Irish need apply. And, you know, that that's discrimination. It's, you know, it's, it's racial discrimination. It's ethnic discrimination quite clearly. But, you know, I mean, that's the lens I see. I see discrimination through the lens of my, my grandfather's eyes. I just don't understand it. You know, I, I think white people feel that, you know, black, which is ridiculous. Now that I'm going to say it, it sounds so ridiculous that black people, uh, minorities, uh, get preferential treatment. Uh, and I just don't get it. But I see discrimination through a different lens that I guess um, some people do. Uh, let me ask you about this on the subject of uh, discrimination. Uh, recently, there was um, a suit filed against Navy Federal Credit Union. Uh, now, I see their commercials and their ads on TV all the time, uh, and they have all sorts of people, including people of color, talking about their military service uh, and their uh, the loans they got from Navy Credit, uh, Navy Federal Credit Union. Uh, uh, talking about the home loans we get. Uh, but recently, there's been a discrimination file suit uh, filed against uh, Navy Federal. Could you talk about that, please? Yeah, this case is pretty um, interesting. So basically, uh, there was an individual who went to Navy Federal, asked to take out a loan. The a loan was um, soft approved, but then two days before closing, he was rejected for it. And um, this made him sort of aware and like look deeper into how Navy Federal is providing loans uh, to multiple people. So and with that, I believe like CNN did an analysis from CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and found that Navy Federal approved more than 75 percent of white borrowers for mortgages in 2022, while approving less than 50 percent of black borrowers. So (laughs) there. (laughs) 
sorry. Yeah. I just heard that thing. Uh, their analysis found that black applicants are more than twice as likely to be denied than white applicants. So what I'm interested to see come out of this is um, there is there's a claim of discrimination within Navy Federal and Navy Federal's argument is that there's more to uh, someone, whether someone gets a loan or not. Um, and I think it's going to bring into the public narrative and conversation around the structural inequities that exist um, when it comes to borrowing and loans. So I'm one thing I will say too, just like I said earlier, Secretary Fudge, HUD have released a lot of um, reports and mandates around uh, discrimination within appraisal and within loans. They've also beefed up um, uh, the team that they have to explore and uh, react and, and address a lot of the discriminatory stuff that's happening. So I think that's a, a big deal that there are more people um, working against this within the federal government. Um, and I have one last thought just to finish up. So Okay, as long as you can oh. finish in 30 seconds, we're fine. Oh, no, I don't have 30 seconds. Okay, go. I don't, I don't have 30 seconds. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks, uh, Edwith. For I have a quick today. question, Brad. Edwith, where's our be a best place for people to keep an eye out on your work? Yeah, really check out AmericanProgress.org. You can check out some of the latest stuff that we've been working on. I know earlier, uh, Brad, you did ask about, um, we were talking about clean drinking water. So we did release a fact sheet that talks about um, how federal investments in safe drinking water infrastructure are improving public health. So check that out. My colleagues, Jill Rosenthal, Haley Gibbs, Ali Schneider, um, Miriam Rashid, they put this together. So I think that would be interesting. And then I have okay. work also coming up Unfortunately, soon. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thanks to our guest, uh, Edward Theogene and Paul Lisnick. Uh, we'll be back soon with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon.